0: Welcome again, my name is Elliot. Uh, we try on Communion Sundays to basically be on a dead sprint in our time together to the Communion table and the elements. Um, so in theory, I will preach a shorter sermon on Communion Sundays, the first Sunday of the month. Um, but no, it's perfect, right? So we're going to do our best today and see how quickly we can get to the table, which will be the most precious part of the morning. But we are in the middle of a sermon series on uh Chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Genesis is our sixth week in the series, and we're looking at this origin story of all origin stories. Um, Moses, the prophet, wrote the book of Genesis to a formerly enslaved people that they might know two things primarily. This is the goal of the book of Genesis, to tell the reader who the God of Israel is and in so doing to tell the reader who they are as well. So every mysterious page of every mysterious story tells the reader who the God of Israel is, and in so doing, who the reader is as well. So all these massive, cosmic-sized questions about where do we come from and why are we here and what's our purpose and why is there sin and why is there pain and why is there hope and is redemption coming? All that finds its origin in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So we've looked at Genesis chapter 1 where God sings the world into existence. We've looked at after God made the world, he rested on the Sabbath day. We've looked at how that same God last week, Jonathan Nash, our Napier pastor, talked to us about this God who made and sang the world and then rested. He also made for man a garden to dwell in and to delight in, the Garden of Eden. So we're in Genesis 2. If you want to turn there, we're actually going to go back to Genesis 1, one page, and read a couple verses from Genesis 1 to set the stage for what we're going to look at in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, ultimately for us, zooms in for the reader on the sixth day of creation. Genesis 1, seven days of creation, the seven-day song. Genesis 2 zooms in on day 6 and gives us some more color, gives us some more detail of what took place on day 6. So let's read, reread uh, the day on which God made Adam and Eve where he makes mankind. That's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And then we'll zoom in a little bit in Genesis 2 for a few verses. So Genesis chapter 1, it's on page 1 in all of your Bibles, uh, starting in verse 26, says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image... After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And then next page, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone alone. took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So you may have a limited familiarity with the biblical story or the the creation story of Genesis 1 and the Genesis 1 and 2 account, but if you were just an elementary reader and you were deciding to read through, just start the Bible on page 1 and 2 and you didn't have any familiarity with it and you read Genesis 1 and you read the song of creation and then you turn the page and you got to Genesis 2, you would be startled. You would be shocked if you were paying attention because all through Genesis 1, the song of creation, there is this repeated phrase that happens over and over again at the end of each day. And behold, God saw all that he had made and said it was good. So God in his self-declaration is looking at his creation and declaring it to be good. And at the end of the seventh day, it says, behold, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So the ending of Genesis one is we have a very good creation. Nothing is bad in creation because God made it and God is good and everything he makes is good. So we have a good creation. Then you get to Genesis two, we zoom in on this sixth day. We're in the middle of the creation account of the six days. And in the middle of the sixth day itself, and we're expecting everything that happens to be good because everything that God has done up until this point is good. And so when he makes the animals, it should be good. And when he makes Eden, it should be good. And now we get to this part, he has made man. And the first thing that God says about his status after he makes man is it's not good that man should be alone. The startling moment for the reader, if you've been reading the account so far, is that, wait, 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 something is not good in Eden. How is that possible? This is the first thing in all of creation that God has declared to be not good. On the vast canvas of all of God's beauty and bliss, there's a longing in Eden. Something is missing in Eden. Something is incomplete in perfect paradise. It is not good, that man should be alone. In other words, at this point in the story where it's just Adam, Eden wasn't Eden yet because there were no relationships yet. Humanity was not made for isolation but for community. And you need to know that no religious group, no church, no ancient culture made up that fact. The Bible made that up because that's how you were made humanity was made for relationships, humanity was made for community, humanity was not intended to live in isolation. If we back up the story, this is why we read a few verses from Genesis 1, if we back up the story, we would see that mankind in, on, in the Genesis 1 account was made in God's image, which means, we looked at this a few weeks ago, humanity was meant to image God. We talked about this But you can think of an image like a mirror. A mirror isn't the thing that it is reflecting. It's merely a reflection of the thing. So if you hold up a candle to a rock, you're not going to see the candle. But if you hold up a candle to a mirror, you will see the reflection. You will see the image of the candle and its flickering beauty. And what it's trying to be, the essence of the self, is actually reflected in the mirror. That's what mankind is. It's meant to reflect the maker that made them. Mankind, womankind was made in the image of God. And if you're reading Genesis 1 and you go, mankind is the only thing made in the image of God. Mankind is the only thing meant to image God. Everything else that God has made before he makes man and woman in Genesis 1, the references to God are all in the singular. And God said, and God made. God in the singular is making all things. But then when we get to the making of man and woman in Genesis 1, the self-reference in Genesis 1 to God is in the plural Let us make mankind in our image. This is God's self-reference in the plural when he makes humanity. This is the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If anyone tells you at any church that they understand the Trinity, leave. Okay? But something we do know about the Trinity is that this is the eternal community of the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living in perfect harmony, perfect delight, perfect self-forgetting, others-glorifying community. They were loving and being loved. They were delighting and being delighted in. They were glorying and being gloried in. This perfect harmony of the Trinitarian Godhead that existed before creation. That community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, says to us, let us make mankind in our image. Which means... That loving interpersonal relationships, community in its best sense is at the center of the universe. That's what formed the world was an eternal, beautiful community. And that's who formed mankind and said, let us make man in our image. So... When God says this to us in Genesis 1, what God wants us to know, what God wants humanity to know, is that if we are made in his image and we are to reflect him, part of our imaging God is that we were made for community, meaning you can't image God in isolation. All of us are on a quest, everybody, we're all drunk with this idea right now, everybody, of finding ourselves finding our fully realized self, going on the quest to discover ourself. And there's so much that's good about that and there's a ton that's wrong with that. But here's what we know based on Genesis 1. If you are going to fully discover yourself, you are not going on the journey of discovering a me. You are going on the discovery of of discovering and finding an us because you were made in the image of a community. You cannot fully find yourself in isolation. It is literally impossible because what's been hardwired into your DNA is that you were made in the image of a communal God. Adam can't image God if he is all alone. So when God makes man from the dust, and places him in the Garden of Delight, the Garden of Eden, there is something still incomplete about this picture. Mankind is not imaging God yet fully, because mankind at this point is all alone, which means something for you. Let me apply this for you real quick. When you and I experience the pain of isolation, the pain of loneliness, it actually doesn't mean you are less like God. It actually means you're more like him. Because if you weren't made in the image of a communal God and you experienced isolation and loneliness, you wouldn't care. But what's crying out in you and in me when we feel our loneliness and we feel our isolation is, I know I wasn't made this way. I know something's wrong because I was made in the image of a communal God. Because you're made in the image of a community, you know deep down that you were made to know and be known. If you weren't like God, you wouldn't care when life felt lonely. This should radically encourage us, not only to know this fact, you were made in the image of a community, that's reality, but also, this blew me away this week studying this. Truly, Adam felt this in the garden. Adam felt loneliness in paradise. Remember, Adam was working in the garden. Adam was eating in the garden. Adam was enjoying creation in the garden. Adam was delighting in his maker in the garden. And there was still something he longed for. In Eden, he still had longing. Adam was in paradise and paradise couldn't do it. This is pre-fall reality. This is pre-sin reality. And Adam still had something that he was longing for in paradise, which means the deepest longings of your heart were not created by sin. They were made by the Lord. Sin did not create your desire, God did. And when God made you in his image, he made you with eternal longings inside of you. Pre-fall, Adam had longings. So all the Eden that we're all trying to create, this is why we get up in the morning because I'm trying to build my life into an Eden. I hear echoes of Eden in my soul. Can I get back to Eden? Can I have the bliss of Eden? Can I have the shalom of Eden? Can I have the perfection of Eden? So I can make more money and have more friends and do cool things and eat better food. If I can just create an Eden for myself, we're all trying to create Eden. Eden remember that if you finally get the Eden that you think you've been trying to make for yourself and you're all alone, it won't be Eden. Because in Eden, even Adam had it all. and He was still left wanting. He still had wants in Eden because he was made in the image of an eternal communal God. Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has placed eternity into our hearts. Do you know how big eternity is? It has no bottom and it has no top. And so the desire that you feel, the longing that you feel is deeper than your body can hold because your body is finite, but you have an infinite amount of longing inside of you. And so you are longing for something that you know you were made for that no Eden that you make could ever give you. That's how deep your longing goes. Not even Eden could satisfy it. And, and, if you're all alone in Eden, and it's not because sin that you have those longings. It's because of your maker that you have those longings. So what does God do with this not good reality in a very good Eden? What does God do? How does he step into this unmet longing for Adam? So God brings all the animals, all the, the, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the living it's kind of a crazy, hilarious scene to have these animals walking in front of Adam and having him naming them. But it's not, that's not just the historical fact to tell you that Adam named the animals. There is some agency and some dominion in that, but that's not what's going on here entirely. Some of what's happening is the narrator is building the tension for you. It's not good that man should be alone. Let's try to meet that need. I know, let's go to all the other living creatures up until this point and see if any of those can meet the need for Adam. And none of them will do. wonder what Adam thought when he saw the platypus, by the way. Just saying. Just saying. Could this be? No, probably not. But I just hilarious scene. And so the reader is meant to feel the tension unfolding. He sees all the creatures and he's still alone. He sees all the creatures and he still has a longing. None of the beasts will do. And you can imagine the tension building because the, the animals that are being brought in front of them, brought in front of Adam, they've all got companions. They've been made male and female already. And so part of this is meant to increase the reader's awareness of Adam's felt need in this moment. It is not good that man should be alone. And he's watching, you know, mama and papa grizzly bear walk by and going, but they've got somebody. They've got, where's, why don't I have someone fit for me? His loneliness builds. And then, verse 21, you can throw this up there. Verse 21 says this. Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That verse 23, when Adam finally sees Eve, he sings a song. It's the, it's the song of Adam when he sees the one that was made for him. And it says, it starts, it says, this at last. That Hebrew phrase is really weird. It doesn't really appear anywhere else in scripture. But it's this like tension has finally built. I'm like at the pinnacle moment and ah, finally. After all the naming of the animals, after all the longing, after all the enjoying of the garden with my maker, and I still have this longing in paradise, at last, at long last, what I have waited for, at long last, what I have longed for is here. I was made for relationship, and here is woman. Taken from me, and yet is mysteriously nothing like me. I have longed for this. Man is not alone anymore and behold, it was very good. The imaging of God is now complete in the garden of delight. Now, side note, you need to know that now that man is no longer alone and that's how the story reads, this text that we're studying is not talking about marriage being the exclusive way that man is no longer alone. This passage is not saying that marriage is the only way to heal your loneliness. Ask any married person in the room and they will tell you they are maybe more lonely than they were before they got married at times. This is reality. That sometimes marriage actually increases your loneliness. And so the point of the passage, we're gonna talk about marriage next week. That's the first wedding. It's beautiful. We're gonna talk about it. But this passage is not saying that in Adam's aloneness, that he was brought a woman. And so the only way to heal your longing in your aloneness is to get married. That's not what it's saying. What it is saying is that in his aloneness, what the Lord brought to Adam was someone not exactly like him. Someone completely different from him. And so this idea that, oh, marriage is the only way that I can have my aloneness healed is not biblical. And do you know that the Christian community actually should be and historically has been the place that actually welcomes singleness and actually says this is a viable option as a part of this faith community? No other faith community in the history of the world would say that to you. Christianity is utterly unique in its approach to singleness. It's the first religious group in the history of the world to present singleness as a viable option. Jesus, our founder, not married. Jesus, what the Bible will go on to call the new Adam, the second Adam, the the firstborn of a new creation, the father of a new humanity, the new Adam, a fully alive, fully complete man, Jesus was unmarried. Jesus lived into all the aspects of what it means to be a human being, and he was celibate. Paul, same way, potentially the third or fourth most influential person in the history of the world, unmarried. And so Christianity comes to singleness and we look at marriage and we will look at marriage next week. We come to singleness and we have to understand that this passage is not saying that in order to meet the longing that was present in you and in Adam in the garden, the way to fulfill that longing is the only option has got to be marriage, right? That's not what it's saying. It does mean that in order for us to fully image God the way we were intended to be, you have to be in community. And maybe in your aloneness, what you need is someone who's not exactly like you. Maybe what it means is that we were made to be in relationship with people who aren't exactly like us. And that actually is how we begin to image God in community. You and I need to know and be known. You and I need to have places where we can have needs and have needs met and meet other people's needs. You and I need to have a place where we can, like the Trinity that we were made to image, where we can delight in the reality of being delighted in back and forth. Because you and I were made to image an eternal community. You and I were made for relationships relationships, the Bible would say, are vital. Community is vital. There's been the longest running health study in American history going on at Harvard since 1938. It's had like six different directors. The current one is a man named Robert Waldinger, unfortunate last name. But he, he gave a TED talk about this. I read, I read journal articles about this this week. It's fascinating. They started tracking the health in 1938 during the Great Depression. They started tracking the health physical health, and they would go on to track the mental health, physical health of 268 Harvard sophomores. At the time, it was all male. So, and they go on to track them and their generations after them for the next 80 years. It's still going. They've expanded their research to the, to the other generations. There's like 1,300 and something people in the study now. And here's the whole point. We're gonna study someone's entire life and track them throughout life. And we're gonna study and try to project out the indicators that will tell us whether or not this person could be a physically healthy person. Like all the aspects of physical health, what, is, what are the indicators that will give someone like longevity of a healthy life? And here's what this 80 plus year old Harvard health study has discovered. The surprising finding in our research is that our relationships and how happy we are in our relationships has the most powerful influence on our health. Taking care of your body is important, yes, but tending to your relationships is more important. They have discovered, he says, that loneliness kills. It's as detrimental as a smoking or alcohol addiction on someone's physical health. Here's what Harvard just told you. You were made for relationships. Thank you, Harvard. Genesis said that a long time ago. (laughs) And actually it adds to like your overall ability to be a healthy person. That you were not made to be in isolation. You were not made to be unknown. You were made to know and be known. And so if that's the case, if relationships are this vital, if Harvard and Genesis would tell you, you cannot thrive, you cannot flourish as a human being all alone, if that's true, what the heck happened? If it's not good that man should be alone, how come so many of us are? If we were made for relationships, how come having them is so hard? It's been said that Jesus' greatest miracle was having 11 close friends in his 30s. Like it is, it is near impossible to know and be known. It is near impossible to bring the weight of this to a community and not have it just rip the scab off. What happened? Well, in the very next chapter, what sin has done to this longing, what sin has done to this cry, what sin has done to this declaration that it is not good that man should be alone is now it takes that longing, that declaration of the longing. It's not good that man should be alone. But now what sin does is it inverts that and it makes it all about me. And it says, if I ever feel alone, I can now use that declaration that it's not good that I am alone and I could use it as a weapon against you. If I'm alone, it's your fault. And what this declaration was meant to do, it's not good that man should be alone, was meant to be an invitation into our longing, into our Eden desire. But what we've done with the declaration is we've said, well, it's not good that I should be alone. So if I ever feel alone, there's a problem here. And what sin has done and what we don't realize is that there is often a massive chasm between two realities. I feel alone versus I am alone. And what we wanna do with this declaration that it's not good that man should be alone is say, well, that means I should never feel alone. And that's not what the text says. It's not good that you should ever be alone, but we don't know how to distinguish between the two. If I feel alone, then I must be alone and that's not good. And it must be everyone else's fault who's made me feel this way. And the feeling of being alone, I feel lonely has written a lot of songs. I looked up just like songs with the title lonely in them or songs that are about loneliness and it sold a bunch of records. Sting Stingin' the Police, Roy Orbison, Bieber, Akon, Mr. Lonely, that song still slaps. That song's an amazing song. <laughs> Beatles, America, there's so many. There's so many songs that are dealing with this feeling of loneliness, because we're all drunk on it, and we all believe I'm not ever supposed to feel this way. What the Bible says is actually, there's just a declaration that you should never be all alone, not you have a right to never feel lonely. Those are different things. And so, because we don't like that feeling, we end up spending an inordinate amount, and I would say debilitating amount of time trying to never feel alone. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite dead people of the last generation, has written a lot about this. Reaching out, his book, Reaching Out, So good. He says, even though we were made to never be alone, it does not mean in a post-sin world that we will never feel alone. And so what we do is we wait for moments and communities and places and churches and friend groups and families, and we demand that they be a place where no pain of loneliness exists, no separation of a relationship is ever felt. And we demand that these places rid me of all of my human restlessness. Here's what Henry Nouwen says, no friend or lover, no husband or wife, no community or commune will be able to ever put to rest our deepest cravings for unity and wholeness. Can't do it. But we take our Eden longing, it's not good that man should be alone, and we burden with divine expectations every relationship we get into. I feel lonely, it's not good that I should feel lonely, so you solve it. I saw a comedian recently who said, it was on Instagram reels, who said, you know, one thing that millennials need to learn is just because we've discovered our problems doesn't mean that we just get to make everybody else deal with them. Like I have anxiety. And he says, oh, great. So what are you doing about that? Nothing. I want you to deal with it. I want you to work around my anxiety. I don't really want to deal with my anxiety. I want you to have to deal with it. That's how we deal with loneliness. Loneliness. We crush our relationships and say, well, I'm feeling lonely. Now I need you to never make me feel that way ever again. And so we demand that our relationships become something they were never meant to be when what we should be doing is taking this declaration of our longing, it's not good that man should be alone, and we should be taking that as an invitation to explore our longings and understand that all the places where I feel alone, could there possibly ever be a community or a place where I can take all my painful feelings of loneliness and not be so alone in them? Can I feel alone and not be alone at the same time? Yes. But here's what sin has done. It's taken our Eden groans and it changes it from an invitation to a weapon. If I ever feel alone, something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with the community. Something's wrong with these relationships. And so I have to change it. I need to find a new significant other. I need to find a new church. I need to find a new small group. I need to find a new set of friends. I need to find a new city because I feel alone here and I'm never supposed to feel alone, right? But what we don't know is what to do with our feelings of loneliness. And what our feelings of loneliness were meant to do were to invite us into exploring our longings that we might take a step in the spiritual direction of solitude, which is radically different from loneliness. Solitude explores intimacy with the Lord. Solitude explores healing with the Lord study was done recently of 600 Australian college students. So this is about Australians, it probably doesn't apply here and it's college kids. So like probably not all of us, but what it found with these 600 college kids was like 596 of them, like 99% of them were all diagnosed with a condition called sedatophobia, the fear of silence. Because silence speaks a thousand words. And so we will do whatever we can to not have the silence scream at us. Because here's what the silence loves to scream at us. You are so alone. You are so lonely. No one is here for you. And so because we have sedatophobia, well, Australians have sedatophobia, because we because they don't know how to deal with it, here's what we do. As soon as I get up, I gotta scroll. Or I gotta put on a podcast. Or I gotta play music while I'm brushing my teeth. Or I gotta be on the phone when I'm in the car. Or I got it during my lunch break, I gotta watch a show. Or when I get home, I gotta, like, I can't ever let the silence in. Because the silence is gonna remind me of how lonely I feel. So in my sedatophobia, I will do anything to never let the silence speak to me. And what the Christian understands about silence is that silence is an invitation to solitude. And what silence is meant to do for the Christian is for us to feel the depth of our loneliness, to feel my Eden longing with the Lord and not be crushed by it. And so then the church becomes a bunch of beautiful people and perhaps more than any other place in the world can be the only place in the world where we can invite people into feeling every drop of their loneliness and tell them as they walk in, you don't have to feel all that alone. We can be lonely together. Proverbs 14 says that each heart knows its own sorrow and no one can share in its joy, which means there's a place in you that no human relationship can get to. I don't care how close your best friends are. I don't care how great your marriage is. There is a place in you, each heart knows its own sorrow and no one can share in its joy that no one can get to except the Lord. And that's what the feeling of loneliness is meant to do for us, invite us into solitude and exploring how we feel with him. And so then the church should be full of these people who understand our loneliness and our Eden longing, that it's not good that we should be alone and we were made for community. Can we be in community together? And then as a community, we invite those inside and outside of us as a body, come join our body and be a member in our body. Come join our home and find a place in this home. Come to our table and pull up a seat to it. Come to a community and find a friend. Come to a family, orphan, celibate, divorced. Come to us and we will be with you in it. That's what the church is meant to be. But we can't do that if we all have sedatophobia and we can't deal with our own Eden longings with the Lord. We should be offering to the world what the band America offered to us in their song, Lonely People. Great song. Listen to it 28 times this week. This is for all the lonely people. Don't give up until you drink from the silver cup and ride that highway in the sky. Now, maybe they weren't talking about the same thing that we're talking about, but, but don't give up. Just because you feel so lonely, don't give up. Don't give up until you come and drink this silver cup with us. So how could we do that? How could the church ever become a people that no, it's okay to feel lonely while also knowing because of our Eden longing, we were made to image a Trinitarian God. And he said, it's not good that we should ever be alone. So we can feel lonely and not be alone at the same time. How could we become a place like that? Well, in the Eden reality of Adam's longing, all that building expectation of him naming the animals, it's not good that I'm, I'm so alone. I... I and he has the, who's it gonna be, what's it gonna be? Do you know what it took for him to end up having the relationship that he longed for? God took a rib from Adam's side to make woman. It cost Adam something to have the relationship he was made for. In other words, Adam was willing to sacrifice for the relationship he longed for. And it's evident in the story just how willing Adam was to sacrifice for this relationship because we hear his ending satisfaction. On the other side of his sacrifice, we hear his ending satisfaction at last, at long last, the one I have longed for. That's what Adam says. He sings a song about it. And then as the biblical story progresses, after Adam's failing in Genesis 3, We've referred to this, but we're told that there would actually come a new Adam, the second Adam. It's what Romans chapter five calls Jesus, our new Adam. The firstborn of a new creation, the patriarch of a new humanity. It's what Jesus is, he's the new Adam, the fully alive, the fully complete man that Adam failed to be, Jesus didn't fail to be. And just like the first Adam, the second Adam would have a relational longing too. And just like the first Adam, the second Adam would have something and a relationship that he longed for so intensely that he was willing to sacrifice for it. Except the second Adam didn't just give up a rib. The second Adam gave up his life. He gave up his blood. And after Jesus sacrificed for the relationship that he wanted, the church, his bride, we're told, Jesus now sees the one he sacrificed for the way that Adam saw the one that he had sacrificed for. Jesus looks at the church. Jesus looks at you and says, at last, at last, the one I've longed for. This is what Ephesians 5 says about how Jesus sees the one he sacrificed for. His bride, the church, it says that he might present his bride, the church, to himself in splendor and in radiance without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing because she is holy to him. Let me put that sentence in Genesis 2 form, at last, the one I have waited for. At last, the one that I have longed for. That's how Jesus views you. And so now this Jesus who has given himself for you, this Jesus who was willing to sacrifice for you, promises that because he has sacrificed for you, you will never be alone. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, he tells his disciples. You cannot be cast out from him and you cannot be plucked from his hand, John 6 tells us. And so you can be with Jesus at any time because he's always with you because he's promised to never leave you. He's promised to always be with you even to the end of the age, he says in Matthew 28. He is never leaving you, which means I don't care how lonely you have felt this week. Not one moment of your lonely feeling have you ever been alone. It is not good that man should be alone and Jesus knew that and he came to take care of that. And so what Jesus has come to do is he has restored to us what we longed for in Eden. Which means even in its in your quietness, even though in our sedatophobia we're terrified of the silence, we can enter the solitude and the quiet with Jesus because we are not there alone and as we have our eden longing restored to us what we were made for it is good that we should not it is not good that we should be alone when we find that we are not alone we can then be the church that offers that and invites that to a very lonely world so church it is not good that we should be alone and your jesus is with you to the end of the age may we be that for a lonely world let's pray Jesus, we feel so lonely, like no one knows us truly, and if they did, they would leave us, and so Jesus, the one who knows us because you made us, and the one who has not left us because you came to us, would you help us to believe that our Eden longing is still alive and well in us, and our Eden longing has been met in you that you are the friend that sticks closer than a brother. You are the spouse that never leaves us. And you are the one who knows how we were made and wants to fashion us, shape us, transform us, and help us be the image we were created to be to reflect the beauty of who you are. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.